0: Your dad and I and a colleague from the White House came to kick us off. I prepared a list for 20 items, put those on the table at the first meeting. The agreement was if we get to a showstopper, we stand up, we shake hands, we go back to our bosses and say, this can't work. We got through all 20. It didn't mean we solved everything, but the sense was, yeah, we can do this.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Interesting People podcast today. I am joined by Bill Rao, Ph.D. Thank you so much for coming in, Bill. Well, thank you, Patrick. I wanted to ask you, so your background, you've done a whole bunch of stuff. You were the former head of NIH, right?
0: I was the acting director of the NIH for a couple of years. I was the deputy director for a long period of time. I spent 25 years total at the National Institutes of Health. And about half of that time, I was in the front office as a deputy director.
1: Uh, what years did you start? What was the I tenure? started
0: with NIH in 1966. Really? And I was there until 1991.
1: I think a lot of people hear NIH. What is the main focus of the National Institute of Health?
0: Well, it's really to learn everything possible about the causes of disease and the basic functioning of our bodies, such that various forms of treatment, whether it's surgery, drugs, vaccines, can be developed that ideally will prevent those illnesses. But failing that at least will help us manage them so we can have a reasonable quality of life while, say, we manage high blood pressure or something of that sort.
1: Okay, so NIH doesn't only handle regulation, they handle research as well?
0: Actually, NIH is not into regulation at all. Oh, really? NIH is there to advance knowledge. The regulatory responsibility for pharmaceuticals, that includes drugs and vaccines, is with the Food and Drug Administration. Now, they're both agencies within the Department of Health and Human Services, and they work closely together. But strictly speaking, NIH does not do regulations with the exception of overseeing the protection of human subjects in clinical trials. It has a special responsibility there. They're not only the sponsor, but they tend to oversee to ensure that those subjects are not put at undue risk. There is proper informed consent that they understand the risks and the benefits associated with being in whatever testing that is.
1: With human test subjects, how much of after the research is done do people keep tabs? Or do they do check-ins like 5, 10 years to make sure there's an extra side effect outside of what that is? Or
0: It depends, of course, on the nature of the trial. But yes, for some, there'll be a long-term follow-up, as it's called, of those individuals just to ensure there aren't any delayed effects that weren't seen in the period of the trial. Somewhat more importantly, if the trial leads to the successful marketing of a new drug, One of the things that are part of the regulations for the Food and Drug Administration is the post-marketing oversight. Those companies are often required to collect various types of data or even do additional studies
1: while the drug is approved and out there on the market. So being in radio, we do it. It's that stuff that the speed-up voice goes through. Some of the side effects may include blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the things that you guys keep track of? Or... Absolutely. How did you end up in NIH? What's the road to that? Because I don't. you're not a doctor, right? You have a PhD. I have a PhD. In...
0: I trained as a physiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Physiologist means studying how living systems work and in my case it was what's called mammalian physiology how humans and other mammalian animals yeah. uh, function did you ever look at whales no didn't work. <laughs> my focus was mostly on rats as a matter of fact and i did my thesis work on how the brain controls breathing. Then and even now we don't understand completely how some of the adjustments are made in the breathing patterns and what mechanisms in the brain are at work. So I did some work on that topic. But then things started to change because to do my work I had to get into this new thing called computer science. Oh really? I had to write my own computer programs, fortunately with the help of my mentor who was one of the pioneers. So my thesis work actually was one of the first areas where there was a major use of a computer in a biomedical research project. And I became more fascinated with the machines than I was with the physiology. And so I took an opportunity to go to the National Institutes of Health, not to do laboratory work, but to oversee what was then a program providing computer facilities for medical schools and other institutions across the country. NIH really jump-started the introduction of computers in those areas. Like many people, well, I'll go for two years and see how it goes. And (laughs) I stayed for 25 because it was an amazing place, NIH. And there were opportunities that opened up after I did that. So I worked not only on advanced advancing computer systems, but then was recruited as the associate director of the National Eye Institute. Now, I'm not an ophthalmologist. Of course, a lot of the science that I had learned was pertinent to the physiology of the eye, and I got into that area of work. I was then recruited to be the associate director and deputy director of the NIH. So by that time, I was more into management and administration than I was into day-to-day <laughs> hands-on technology. The career evolved that way, so it's been just one step at a time, taking the opportunities as they come. I'm kind of curious about the breathing thing real quick. There are classical experiments where if you breathe back and forth into a paper bag, you build up the CO2 level that you otherwise would be releasing into the air, and you start breathing faster. You can lower oxygen to someone, and they start breathing faster. You can see those changes in the blood levels of the carbon dioxide or the oxygen, but during exercise, your breathing speeds up, gets deeper, faster to accommodate whatever level of exercise you're doing, but yet the changes don't seem to be evident in the blood. Really? So that was the question I addressed, and we were interested in whether there were fluctuations in time, what's called a time series. Think of a curve going on that we might be able to measure those electrical events and somehow understand better why the average blood composition seemed the same, and yet the lungs were responding to the obvious need for more oxygen and to eliminate carbon dioxide. We thought we might see a breath-by-breath pattern. We didn't, but we saw a pattern changing over multiple breaths, like 10 or 20. It gave some new insights, but like much of science, opened new questions, you know, (laughs) rather than laying to rest completely the topic. But I needed computer analysis.
1: The internet didn't play a big role in what you were doing at NIH then, right? No,
0: the early development of the internet, something called the ARPANET, done by the Department of Defense, was going on. At the time, I was managing the computer facilities program for the medical schools and others around the country. And I envied my colleagues in the Department of Defense for all the resources they had and all the flexibility they had. But it evolved into something that first the National Science Foundation had promoted and then more broadly as what we now call the Internet. But the DOD gets the credit <laughs> for understanding the potential of connecting these machines together and, more important, connecting these local networks together. So one of the reasons that we were going to have this conversation is pharmaceutical regulations. Well, let's start the basis of it. The Food and Drug Administration has a charge that is very simply stated, that nothing should be for marketing unless it's safe and effective. Two very straightforward words. And yet, in practice, that is one of the most difficult jobs of any agency anywhere in the federal government or anywhere in the world. <laughs> the counterparts of FDA in Europe have the same set of challenges. So the pillars are safe and effective, or to use the other term, safety and efficacy. As laypeople, it's easy to think of those as absolute terms. It's safe or it's not safe. It's effective or it's not effective. It works or it doesn't work. In reality, both of those are a spectrum of things. Probably nothing of a drug is totally safe, 100%. I don't know of any drug that only targets exactly what it's supposed to do and doesn't have some effect somewhere else. So safety, it all depends. What are the side effects and how do they relate to the disease or other problem that's being treated? And it's a trade-off, a risk and a benefit. By the same token, effectiveness can be a little bit or it can be a lot. And for some diseases or other disorders, a little bit is better than nothing, helps the quality of life, even if it doesn't change the disease itself. But others, you look for the big win. An example of looking for the big win is with some standard infections. There's a bug. It's acute. That is, it's a one-time thing. You treat it with an antibiotic. You kill the bugs. The infection is over. You expect the big win. And for many infections, you might tolerate, and many of us do, a little bit of upset stomach or something else as a side effect from the antibiotic because we know that this is temporary, but we're going to get rid of this infection. In other cases, people, for example, have serious motor disorders. that are difficult difficulty using their limbs, particularly walking, and there are a number of brain disorders, many of them rare diseases that cause this. Well, if those individuals could have increased mobility, if they could have the ability to walk unaided, that's not a cure. But it's a major improvement in the quality of life, and they might well put up with some side effects to gain that benefit. Probably the most dramatic actually is in cancer research. Many forms of advanced cancer, needless to say, are horrible. Some of the drugs, so-called chemotherapy drugs, can kill those cancer cells. But they kill a lot of other cells, too. Generally, the cancer cells are dividing rapidly. So a drug whose characteristic is to kill rapidly dividing cells will kill other cells in our body that normally are rapidly dividing, like cells that line our stomach or the bone marrow, the cells that produce the red blood cells. For many people, in advanced cancer, it's very painful, just debilitating them. If there's a prospect of what's called remission, silencing that cancer, it could be months, it could be years. Everybody hopes it'll be permanently, but say five years, most people would take that in a heartbeat, are prepared to suffer a few months' worth of the distressful hair loss, anemia, gastrointestinal upset to get that benefit. The efficacy
1: is outweighing the kind of safety aspect in that case. Exactly
0: right. And it's something that the final decision is with the patient. Physicians will counsel and make recommendations, but people in the end have to decide, will I accept these risks? for the possibility of this benefit. And much of the progress in cancer research especially, where the death rates have been going down progressively, is not only because of the innovation of people in the scientific laboratories and the pharmaceutical companies and the physicians and nurses, but those patients who've made the decisions, who've provided kind of information and experience that allows people to refine the treatments and make them better. So those patients get an enormous amount of credit for dealing with that. We can go to another extreme, which is Mm. vaccines. In the case of a vaccine, we want to prevent disease. We have a healthy person. So... A major side effect of the vaccine is generally unacceptable in a healthy person. And so the vaccine companies struggle, and FDA sets a very high bar for what an acceptable safety level for a vaccine for the benefit of preventing a particular disease. For most of the vaccines you see advertised that are extremely effective for measles, mumps, especially mm-hmm. the childhood vaccines, There's a soreness around the injection site. For most people, that's quite tolerable. People hate injections, but on the whole, that's a small price to pay to be generally protected. Again, nothing's perfect, but there's excellent (laughs) possibilities you'll never have that disease. Older people, shingles, the bacterial pneumonia, these sorts of things, they're
1: very effective and safe vaccines. We have this kind of distrust of vaccines in this country right now. Do you think it's a miscommunication of, like, side effects or any of that kind of stuff?
0: I think there are some misunderstandings about it. If the expectation is you will never have any side effect,
1: and especially if you
0: don't think you're going to get that disease, then people tend to be very reluctant, even intolerant. When I was a child, measles and other things were so common that anything that was available that could prevent it would automatically be adopted because of the high levels of vaccination rates, there can be, let's say, childhood diseases. There can be children in the community that aren't vaccinated, but they are reasonably safe because there isn't active that disease in the community itself. But measles, especially, if it's imported into the community, there are all these vulnerable children. The vaccination of a large percentage of the population is what's called herd immunity, that so many people are protected that some people can get away with not being protected. But some of the difficulty in recent years is parents refusing the vaccines and putting too large a fraction of the children, and for some adults, too large a fraction of them, at risk, hoping the herd immunity is going to take care of it. But if there's any change in the population, then they're at serious risk of that disease. Always a challenge. But I keyed on this because the recipient of the vaccine generally is a healthy person. And so there's the least tolerance of any significant side effects in that case. Whereas
1: when there's a serious disease, then it's a different balance. Is there a role in genetics and maybe even race in that where who is considered safe? Some conditions like sickle cell and other things affect other races quicker or earlier in life into more severity.
0: Absolutely. In the sense that genetics determines a lot and some of that can be associated with racial characteristics, but it's far more than that. A big area research, and you hear it now advertised in some of the medical centers and their practices, is doing some sort of genetic analysis on you in the hopes of being able to target the therapy. There's emerging understandings of why drug X works well in one person but not in another. And some of that, maybe a lot of it ultimately will be shown to be, is because of genetic differences in those individuals. A part of the NIH, the National Institute of Genome Research, is focused heavily on understanding the genetic basis of normal function and of disease to help drug developers, therapists, and others understand how to target things Mm. with a better way. I think that's only going to increase. I don't remember when we
1: cracked the genome. Were you still there when they cracked the genome? I was. How great was that?
0: I would say a wear through rather than a breakthrough. It was clear that it could be done, it needed to be done, different technologies had to be tried, but none of us had any doubt that ultimately it would work. There were superb people in charge of it, not only in the United States, but in England and and elsewhere. With the full-court press, that developed. Now, knowing the code didn't immediately Turn on a lot of light bulbs. Oh, yeah. We now had a blueprint, but understanding how that blueprint related to normal function and to disease then set the new challenge, and that's what we're into now. In the years since I've been there, the technology for doing the sequencing has gotten better and better, faster, cheaper, and so this can begin to be tailored to people. And there's no doubt in my mind that as we go on, more and more of these things will have an understanding of the genetic basis, and therefore a way to say this drug is good, this vaccine is good for you, this one's better, this one you should stay away from.
1: Earlier on you said so it could go to market, or marketing. Is that just a term for it can be advertised or it can be sold? Sold.
0: The term Marketing means that it's approved and therefore can be sold. Now, every drug has associated with what's called the label. Label, for most of us, conjures up a little sticker of some yeah. kind. Label is really a pretty complicated set of documents, you know <laughs> several sheets of paper. The heart of the labeling is what is this drug approved for? For example, it can be approved... For the treatment of high blood pressure but say not for the treatment of enlarged prostate to take a male example now doctors have the discretion patient by patient to use a drug for something other than what it's approved or labeled for and that's called off-label use FDA has no intention of standing in the way and blocking the progress of medicine but those are individual doctor patient decisions if there were any situation where a physician or some organization wanted to use a drug on a group of people For something that was not the approved indication, as it's called, not on the label, that would be considered off-label, and that is inappropriate, and FDA would have the right to prosecute that. Certainly Mm. try to block it, but more even take action if necessary to stop it. So the constraints of the label are very important. In some cases, there'll even be the so-called black box warning where don't use it for this.
1: Oh, 100% it's known that this will cause complications.
0: We know this has the problems. But they try to use it in every way they possibly can to give physicians the information they need. Again, one-on-one, the physician can use the discretion. That moves medicine forward. Chance plays an important part. More than chance, I think it was Marie Curie who said uh, chance favors the prepared mind. Many of the leads, as they're called, for new drug development come from that kind of observation. This is worth pursuing. What role do generics play
1: in all of this?
0: Well, generics by definition come later in that there's usually a single approved Product, it's the first one in. Others may follow it as approved drugs, but typically there's a protection. If there's a patent protection, it can be 17 years or something of that sort. So the company, having invested a lot of money, could easily be a billion and a half dollars to get that far, has the opportunity to recoup that investment if the drug proves successful in the market and is used. But eventually that market protection passes, and there's a whole other industry who make copies of it, the generic drug, which is actually good for the long term for healthcare. Oh, yeah. It creates not only choice, but it almost inevitably drives down the price of that product. So there's a creative tension as to how long <laughs> the protection should be for a single drug and how soon the generic industry should be able to make their products. Now, typically, a generic drug has the same what's called active ingredients by definition. But it may have different inert materials, okay. stabilizers, or maybe a different capsule formulation, something of that sort. So there can be subtle differences, again, only in some patients, yeah. between how the brand name drug works and the generic drug. Many physicians will happily prescribe the generic drug, but then occasionally have the patient say, this isn't really working for me. But if they go back to the brand name drug, it does. For some people, the formulation apparently makes a difference.
1: Do they get retested, I guess, when a generic comes out as to pass through a similar kind of processes. The
0: generics are regulated as well. Now, there will already be a fund of safety data from (laughs) animal testing as well as the human clinical trials, but still that product needs to be tested. In fact, FDA regulates the batches because they need to be made consistently and properly.
1: So each time a a large batch of it is made, it's tested and Mm -hmm. made sure to...
0: Not generally known, but one of the aspects of FDA's role is overseeing the so-called good manufacturing practices to be sure these are made not only consistently, that the batch made six months ago is as effective as the batch made today, but that they're made in, of course, sterile conditions. They're made with proper quality controls. It's a very difficult task, but an extremely important part of it that most of us don't see. It's the part Mm -hmm. of the iceberg. There have been other instances, not so much with the Manufacturing process, but where the long term experience with the drug has shown there are problems that didn't show up in all the testing before it. Mm-hmm. So it either needs to be recalled or more likely have the labeling changed to refine. Oh, so it's, it's used. like
1: it's something that came out in the 70s and then like nowadays they're like, oh, wait, after continual use, a new side effect is found.
0: Sure. I mean, think of it as the numbers of people. If we test something in 10 people and it looks great, that means very little. If we test it in 100 people and it looks great, well, you're starting to feel better about it. But for many of these drugs, you want to see them tested in, say, a 1,000 or 10,000. And in some instances, it's only after they're marketed and used by millions of people over a decade or so that you begin to see some things that may be related to the drug. One of the great difficulties with side effects is, of course, may have nothing to do with the drug. It may just be a coincidental finding. FDA has a system for reporting these things. And so physicians and patients are encouraged to report things that are parent unintended side effects. They may or may not be. But FDA dutifully compiles all these things, does the analyses, and once in a while finds that in a very large number of people, there's this small signal that says there's a problem with this drug, and they work hard to try to find why. I think almost certainly as we go on, it's going to be pinpointed as there's a genetic difference in this particular group of people, a rare genetic condition. We didn't pick it up in a small trial. We pick it up in a huge number of subjects. So statistics.
1: What about the expiration? dates on medicine. How serious are those? Each
0: drug that's approved and each batch that's marketed has what's called the expiry. Now, this is done very conservatively. That doesn't mean the day after the expiry date, it will no longer be effective. So they try to provide a margin of safety. Often, this is not a problem at all in the sense that usually when a drug is prescribed for us, the physician expects we're going to take it right away. We're going to use it. And therefore, that's not an issue. What becomes an issue is drugs that aren't taken fully. Some sits on the shelf for a long period of time, maybe years. And there may not be a lot of data on that, but generally the prudence would be to say, destroy those. And in fact, FDA has special recommendations of how those are to be discarded. You don't want them in the water supply. Yeah, I was hard right? to ask
1: that because a lot of people flush stuff or any of that kind okay. of thing. Is even the trash safe? One what? of the common recommendations
0: is to mix them with coffee grounds.
1: Really? Yeah, it, it'll absorb the drugs and
0: basically keep it out of the groundwater or other things. It's, it's a major problem of Many health departments around the country will actually be willing to receive old, expired medications, and they have various processes for destroying those. One of the challenges in emergency preparedness is having drugs available, readily available, to use when there's an emergency. So there is an entity in the Department of Health and Human Services run by another one of its agencies called the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, otherwise known as CDC. It's called the Strategic National Stockpile. Hundreds of thousands of doses. Antibiotics primarily, but other forms as well, are maintained in carefully controlled warehouses around the country. Now, early on, it was clear that it would just be a shame if we threw away, destroyed thousands of doses because the expiry date, when no one really had a lot of good information. For the Strategic National Stockpile and a smaller comparable entity in the Department of Defense and one serving the Veterans Administration, there's something called a shelf life extension program. And that is as those particular set of drugs near the expiry date, a sample is taken goes to a laboratory, often an FDA laboratory, where it's tested for its potency, its purity. And if sitting on the shelf for five years, let's say, did not affect this in any way, then that particular batch can be recertified and kept with reasonable knowledge that it's still good if you needed to use it in an emergency. It's important to have that indication because if it had to be distributed during an emergency and people say, you're giving me expired drug... It's a conspiracy. Yeah. You can see that as a major public health crisis and confidence in the health system. So it's important to know that the drugs in this stockpile, if they need to be used in an emergency. So there's just a bunch of stuff where they're just constantly just changing the end date on that. Health life of vaccines can be harder. because so many of those have to be kept under refrigerated condition. And those are often not able to be extended. And so many of those just need to be discarded. If a better
1: treatment was found, do you guys just need to restock the entire stockpile?
0: When that occurs, it's more a decision of the economics of, it. Is it only a little bit better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in which that's... case, let's not throw everything away. If it's materially better, then there'd be more likely to be a staged acquisition of investing in the new material, but not discarding the old material, being sure you have enough capacity to serve. If you know that both work, you would try to use the better one. But if it's life and death situation, you would use
1: something that you know works. So when you started NIH and then from the close in '91, what were the biggest changes you saw in that process? Several major changes that occurred. One
0: is that to FDA's credit, it made it easier to interact. When the volume of activity was less, there was a tendency to have everything very much arm's length, to file the so-called investigative new drug application on the hope that you were somewhere close to what FDA might expect to see. Over the years, without compromising their integrity or their ability at all, FDA has evolved the system for various pre-submission conferences where they can get a better understanding of what people were thinking about. The potential applicant can understand better what FDA is expected. They're not saying anything those conferences are we <laughs> (laughs) promise you this or that, but they're amazingly helpful. And that's evolved systematically over the years. I first saw it change with the emergence of the HIV AIDS, where there was a sense of national urgency that things had to move. And FDA went a long way for those kinds of interactions to help people stage how they might pursue these drugs development. It turned out that the first two drugs approved for the treatment of HIV AIDS came from the National Institutes of Health, from the internal laboratories at the NIH. So they were, even though a fellow agency, an applicant to the FDA as a medical school or a pharmacy yeah. or a pharmaceutical company or other would be. That's been a major improvement, and I give FDA a lot of credit for that. The other is they've done a lot over the years to prioritize what they look at. So it's no longer get in line and go through the queue. If there's a treatment or prospective treatment for a rare disease that has nothing yeah. or little, that can get to the head of the queue. Fairly quick. Whereas if it's the eighth or ninth possible treatment for something, they certainly won't ignore it, but that will get likely less priority in the queue for resources and time and attention than something for a rare disease or for a child's disease. A similar thing is true for what are called new molecular entities, meaning a compound that is unlike anything else used. So if we take, say, the treatment of high blood pressure, there are many different drugs that work differently for the treatment of high blood pressure. And if one emerge that was a different kind of molecule, a different structure than anything else and worked a different way, if that looked promising, that would get a lot of attention because it would not only add to the number of treatments, but it would expand the range. And again, give the physicians the the ability to say, well, I think this will work better for you than this other. So choice is a very important factor.
1: After NIH, because we talked about your past, where did you go after that and how have you been keeping tabs okay, on Okay,
0: well, that? from NIH, I went to the White House Science Office and spent a year there working on a variety of projects. Was that during uh, Bush one or Clinton? That was during the end of Bush one. It was the last year. I was planning to come back to the Department of Health and Human Services in some capacity, either NIH or elsewhere. But then I was recruited as the science advisor to the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. And it just seemed like an interesting challenge, something very different than anything I'd done. And from a scientific point of view, it was wonderful because almost any area of science, other than maybe particle physics and astronomy, (laughs) gets involved in, in regulation of the environment, the health issues, their groundwater protection, all manner of things. And so I really enjoyed the challenge. And I was there for three years of being the science advisor to the administrator there. I was then recruited back to Health and Human Services as the science advisor to the secretary. That was then... Then Secretary Shalala, I stayed on for the remainder of her term and two more secretaries. So I served three secretaries altogether. And so I retired in 2009. And it was mostly because 42 and a half years, I certainly could have stayed on, but I <laughs> thought there might be other challenges. And there's a maxim that says retire into health rather than retire into illness. There and I, you go. I was doing well, feeling good. <laughs> and it was an opportunity to explore other things. During my work in the last Decade or so at Health and Human Services as science advisor, the issues of bioterrorism emerged, and so I became one of the handful of people there building up the capability to deal with these biological threats. And it's how, among other things, I got to know colleagues in the United States Postal Service. That's how you ran into my father, <laughs> yeah, because we had a the White House posed a challenge to us that some of us had thought of before, but we had never acted on it. That if drugs needed to get to virtually everybody in a community really quickly, how would you do it? Now the standard model that has many. Ver- virtues is what's called the point of dispensing. Health department would set up multiple points, like little clinics, temporary things. They might be in a shopping center, or they might be in a school where people would come, ideally see a nurse or a physician, and get a drug and try to avoid prescribing the wrong drug. So it's a wonderful model. Its main downside is the logistics. If things had to move quickly, imagine all the population of Frederick, Maryland, yeah. converging on a small number of places, what that would be to traffic and the chaotic atmosphere. And not that that model should be abandoned. That's the heart of response. But the question came up, could it be better? Or could there be something that went on the front end that would facilitate it? So a number of us thought about, well, could the letter carriers do it? <laughs> People could stay home, have it delivered to them. But it was a colleague in the White House at the time in the National Security Council who called your father and me. We hadn't met each other at that time and said, do you think this would work? So... Neither of us were sure. The Postmaster General then took the initiative, contacted the heads of the two unions that represent the letter carriers. There's a urban carriers and rural carriers. That relationship was great. Those two unions said, well, let's explore it. So they appointed a team of negotiators. Your dad and I and colleague from the White House came to kick us off. We met one day a week for six weeks. I prepared a list of things. There were 20 items that we needed to work through. Put those on the table at the first meeting, and everybody said, well, this seems reasonable. Yeah, let's work from this until we... <laughs> To see something different. The agreement was: if we get to a showstopper, we stand up, we shake hands. Oh, we go back to our bosses and say this can't work for the following reason. We got through all 20. It didn't mean we solved everything, but the sense was: yeah, we can do this. And the letter carriers union representatives were magnificent. I wasn't sure how to appeal to them. This is not in their job description. They would be potentially putting themselves at risk if there were a spraying of some bug over a community. They'd be out in it. It might be fine. It might be a hot zone. So how do you tell these people, oh, why don't you volunteer to put yourself (laughs) potentially at risk? I'm the guy in the suit. How am I going to present this to people who will be on the street? I won't be on the street. They will. I didn't have to. Really? The union representative, the safety guy for the urban letter carriers, said, we live there. These are our families, our friends, our neighbors. We want to be part of this. But we need something. We need the drugs we would need to protect ourselves because i got a family. So I don't want to run out to go get a drug somewhere and my family's at home. Street smart, perfect logic. Now, I had thought that too, but I didn't expect these guys to oppose it. We made it happen. It was the hardest thing I've ever worked on because that's off-label. Oh, it is. You can't just give somebody an antibiotic when they're not sick or no immediate prospect they're going to be sick. So it took a long time, but we worked through with the Food and Drug Administration what's called an emergency use authorization. I won't bore you with the details, but it (laughs) took the Secretary of Homeland Security to declare that there was a terrorist threat. It took my boss, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, to declare that there's a public health emergency, not now, but there's a public health emergency when it happens because you can't get them the drugs fast enough, so they need it now. And then, of course, we had to work through with the FDA all the conditions under which this would be done. it worked and so we had five cities who had volunteered for this with their public health departments and to the credit of my colleagues in the postal service especially putting together the collaborative arrangements not only between the postal service but the local health department the local police the local emergency management people in some instances bringing people together where they hadn't before that program is in mothballs at the moment because the funding ran out Ah but it was a successful demonstration that Mm -hmm. this could be done. My belief remains that we as a nation need that kind of protection, but it's Mm. not the mission of the people who buy stamps to pay for that. (laughs) So it needs to be funded in some appropriate way by the public health authorities. And I understand the trade-offs of how much would you spend on this and how much invest in the search for a new vaccine. But I tell that example because not only of the initiative and the public spiritedness of my postal colleagues, especially the carriers in, in the street, but also the formidable difficulty off-label. It's not that FDA didn't care, but it has statutes. It's subject to its own regulations and rules of how it can operate. And it simply did not have the discretion to say, oh, that's fine, go and do it. So we worked through all the legal niceties of that. And so it gave me a really deep appreciation of (laughs) the tasks they have and and how difficult the regulations can
1: be. That's incredible. Is that the last big project you worked on?
0: Last major project I worked on before retiring, but then that led to, after I retired, The Postmaster General and others said, well, would you be interested in being a consultant on public health issues? So to this day, I continue on an as-needed basis, mostly on issues of terrorism and suspicious mail, as we call it. Unfortunately, the mail can be a medium for nasty
1: things. We're in the Fort Detrick area, so I think everyone thinks of that.
0: Exactly. And many things that are harmful will get mailed not with malicious intent, but by accident. The young man who thought his uncle needed a bottle of mercury for some project. Oh, no. So he just put a bottle in a loose package. <laughs> and it broke open in a postal facility. They closed that facility for two days for the safety yeah. reasons, for the protection of, of the workers. Almost every day somewhere in this country, something breaks open and it's a white powder. And the Postal Inspection Service, the Postal Police Authority, if you think of it that way, there's a well-developed drill, the so-called white powder protocol. Almost always it's cornstarch, yeah. baby powder, but it could be anthrax an organism. It could be one of the opioids, especially fentanyl, that's such a concern these days, and it's have to take everything seriously. And Part of my role, I mean, not only plan to how to deal with those things, but when we have an incident, consulting with the postal management. My colleagues there, the Inspection Service, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Inspection Service, in turn, works for the FBI Mm -hmm. because this is potentially a crime. And so there's generally well-developed response that we have. Each one's different. Uh, Some of them are just funny, but some of them are quite serious. Had one a few years ago, actually a series of letters and then two copycat series, where someone had malicious intent and sent a threat letter to a senator and the president and a judge and a few other people. It was a hate letter threatening death. It said it Is ricin. Ricin is a deadly poison. What it was is castor beans, which are the source of ricin. It's a rather attractive plant, by the way, have <laughs> the castor bean, and you can get the seeds without no difficulty on the through the internet. He put these beans and the death threat letter in several of these envelopes. Well, as they went through the postal processing, which is highly automated these days, they get crushed. So oh. beans get turned into a granular mix of things. Your dad likes to say, "We've got the best food processors in town." <laughs> So, when these arrived, fortunately, in the case of the Senate especially, they already have security procedures. So, it's not that the senators are opening their own mail. It's actually a facility under special conditions. And when you dump out this granular powder, you don't know what it is, and you see a hate letter, this is a crime. In that particular instance, the people responding did what they should. They saw the problem, they called in the local law enforcement people, which happened to be the Capitol Police. They had some quick tests available. Many of my lab colleagues disparage the quick tests because they're not <laughs> as good, anywhere near as good it as a laboratory testing, but it gives you some indication. In this case, they tested and got a positive for ricin, then they got a negative for ricin, and then they got an inconclusive. But it wasn't clear which of those it was, one kit was expired, that, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And They called in the FBI, and the FBI arranged for further testing. Well, the happy news there was it turned out, yes, it was ricin, but it was ricin as the natural constituent of a castor bean. So a percentage so low that it couldn't possibly be any life-threatening thing. If somebody ate a lot of this stuff, you'd probably have an upset Stomach, but it wasn't going to kill anybody. But there was no way to know with the initial testing whether that was refined ricin that could kill instantly or just the natural. Our life got complicated because the Senate staffers then briefed the Senate Majority Leader at the time. They told him ricin had been found. Oh. Well, in fairness to him, he didn't know, so he said ricin was found. The press at this press conference were not science press. They were political. So they turned to Google. <laughs> ricin one of the most deadly poisons known. Well, that set off alarm bells. We in the Postal Service didn't even know about it at the time, so we yeah. were behind the eight ball to start. That set of letters got resolved. That particular individual ended up in jail. But then we had two copycat sets months later, one out of Texas and one out of the state of Washington, I believe, where somebody had read about that and that seemed like a good idea. <laughs> Again, no one yeah. got hurt. Nobody died. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm but, remembering
1: yeah. the story now that you're talking about it reading about that in the paper.
0: Yeah. And of course the postal workers, especially the people in processing, are sensitive to it because in 2001 when the anthrax organism was contained in the spore form in the letters, two postal workers in Washington DC died because of the heavy exposure
1: they mm. had to that.
0: So postal and the rest of us oh, take, yeah. take this very seriously.
1: What role do those epidemics play into that? Like when we had the, the Ebola outbreak like a year or two ago and that kind of, does that boost up Ebola research? or?
0: Well certainly to use your example, the Ebola epidemic in, in Africa was a major stimulus for research. Ebola was not a new disease, but it had been a relatively infrequent disorder. And I don't mean to sound callous, but it was over there. Mm -hmm. It was in Africa. It wasn't a threat to the U.S. And so it wasn't a major topic for investment. Scientists in many labs found the virus interesting and had done studies on it, but it wasn't driving toward any kind of pharmaceutical product. But with the huge outbreak that occurred in Africa, and then, of course, some cases coming back to the U.S. by people who'd been there and brought back the infection, it created the realization. there needed to be a lot more investment. And so there was a strong push, which continues to develop, especially a vaccine, Mm -hmm. something that might be a preventative for it. Viruses, ironically, are hard to treat with drugs. The best way to think about it is a bacterium, a Mm -hmm. germ, is a relatively large thing compared to a virus. And it's a relatively complicated thing compared to a virus. A complicated thing can be easy to kill. It's got a lot of working parts. And if you interfere with those working parts, it dies. The virus is a bunch of DNA or RNA, genetic material, a protein coat wrapped around it. Strictly speaking, it's not alive. It's alive in the sense that if it gets into your cells, it can take over the genetic machinery of the cell and make more copies of itself. And the process of copying itself often destroy the host that's, that's creating it. But it's not a particularly easy target. Relatively speaking, antibacterial drugs are a lot easier to develop, not that it's simple, but a lot yeah. easier than an antiviral drug. I think the roots of future progress are with the NIH with the major medical centers around the country, certainly with the Infectious Disease Lab here at Fort Detrick. is a world-class of being able to get those kinds of insights that will lead to the drug development.
1: Uh, and a new area of regulation then. <laughs> it goes on and on. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I end every interview with the exact same question. And you, I'm actually kind of curious where this is going to go. What has you excited? I'm excited about the prospects for things. Uh, what
0: drives the NIH, what drives many of us to enter science, is there are things that we know we don't know. And they're something to pursue. But there's also the deeper challenge of we don't know what we don't know. And that's where the so-called basic science comes in, just trying to understand fundamentally who we are, how we work, how it's affected by disease of various kinds. And it's only that knowledge that's really going to create the base for progress we need, the so-called science base for new drugs, for new vaccines, for new diagnostic devices. And so my excitement and my hope is knowledge is what gets us where we need to be. Thank you so much. Okay.